0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, the first reading, well the reading is Isaiah 52, um, verse 13 uh, to the end of chapter 53. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should uh, desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before the shearers is silent, or so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence and nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, sorry, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in His hand. after he has suffered, He will see the light of life. And be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death. And was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many are made intercession for the transgressors
1: now this easter we 've been looking at uh, the person and work uh, of Jesus uh, in the book of Isaiah. now, just to bring you up to speed in case you haven 't noticed, uh, the book of Isaiah was written uh, seven hundred bc thereabouts okay uh, so seven centuries prior to uh, Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection, Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote the words that we have just heard. We've been working through the servant songs, songs that uh, describe the work of the servant. And as I tried to explain over the last three weeks, uh, these songs are pivotal to how Jesus understood himself. He goes to them again and again and again and how the New Testament understood the person work of Jesus. And so it's really important uh, that we grapple with them. It's a massive task uh, that we have this morning. This is the longest of the servant songs, the most detailed of the servant songs. One author describes it, it's almost like Isaiah sat beneath the cross and wrote it down. Uh, The detail that is there is astounding. And in case you don't believe uh, I haven't convinced you yet that the servant and Jesus are one and the same, uh, there's a a lovely little story in Acts chapter 8 where we have uh, uh, Philip coming along. Uh, Philip was one of the early church leaders uh, and he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, an official in the ruler of Ethiopia in her... um, in her uh, court and uh, he'd been up to the temple being a foreigner and a eunuch he wouldn't have been allowed into the temple so he actually would have sat on the edge he would have uh, sat out on the outside and very very clearly be told uh, you are actually not welcome here Uh, and then he goes and goes back And he's sitting in his chariot and Acts records for us, he's reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And in those days, you didn't read quietly in your head, uh, you read out loud. Uh, Reading quietly in your head is only a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, And so Philip actually hears what he's reading and asks him if he understands. And he's reading Isaiah chapter 53, And he says, how can I understand unless someone explains it to him? And he was reading the very passage that we have had read for us today. And he says, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Who is this servant? And Luke records for us in Acts, he says, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus the servant of the Lord is the Lord Jesus. And as we dive in today, we will see uh, the cross with its death, its shame, but the victorious resurrection in beautiful detail. Three points, uh, all starting with M. Uh, mandate, method and meaning. So there's, there's two points in one there. Uh, and marvel uh, in tribute to the Avengers, which is coming out in a week or two. Uh, so there we have uh, Let's dive in. Mandate. Just a bit of a recap. What have we been looking at? Uh, We've seen the servant of the Lord has a job to do. The first servant song in Isaiah 42. He's there and he is given the job of bringing forth justice. Isaiah 42 verse 3. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. This is the mandate that the servant is given. Justice, not just punishing the wrongdoer, but actually setting up a world where relationships work rightly, where there is no oppression, where there is no evil, a world where everything is as it should be. A world of harmony, a world of peace a world that is captured in the the Hebrew term that you'll be familiar with most likely, shalom, which is not just an absence of warfare, an absence of conflict, but a state of blessing, a state of perfect harmony. If you think about Eden, before the fall, where everything is right, that is the mission the servant is given, justice, Isaiah 42. But not just justice, Isaiah 49 tells us that the servant has another mission or another angle on the one mission of that servant and it is salvation. The Lord says to the servant, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. They were in exile in Babylon at this time and to bring back to those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, for the nations, the non-Jews, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This servant is bringing salvation to the ends of the earth, to every person, Jew and Gentile. And I used the the phrases there, we talked about the micro-salvation of bringing Israel back out of Babylon, saving God's people out of exile and bringing them home. But that mirrored a much bigger salvation that the servant was going to bring. You may be familiar with the prophet Ezekiel. He was in exile with uh, Israel in Babylon. And at one point, he has a vision. He has a vision of a battlefield, a valley full of dead, dry bones. And the Lord asks him, says, son of man, can these bones live? The prophet, knowing to whom he speaks, doesn't just say no. Uh, He says, uh, you you alone, Lord, know that. Uh, And he shows him the resurrection of this great army of people and breathes the spirit into them and gives them life. And then the Lord tells Ezekiel, this is Israel. Not just a return from exile, but a resurrection from death and judgment achieved through the servant. That's his mission, justice and salvation. And I want to start you thinking, is your vision of God just a little bit too small? Are your vision, is your I think we've lost a uh, thing again. Oh, there we go. So I'm going to wave at Paul and he's going to change because uh, things are not working properly here. But uh, is your vision of God too small? We often can personalise things and God is a personal God. He is intimately concerned for our details, but we can bring God down and make him just, you know, a me and me and Jesus kind of God. Do we have a vision of God that, that consumes the whole world, that actually spans human history, not just the nitty gritty of our lives, even though He does do the nitty gritty of our lives, but do we have a vision of God that is this big? That the work of Jesus was not just so I could go to heaven, so you could go to heaven, but so the world could be redeemed, that justice could be established that the effects of sin from Genesis 3 could be reversed and blessing could come once again. Is your God too small? The servant has a mission. His mandate is to bring justice and salvation. And the question we turn to now is, how does he do that? Because Isaiah 42 and 49, they give little hints. There's a little bit more there in Isaiah uh, 50 verse 4 when he talks about uh, turning his cheek. It uh, talks about bearing his back to those who beat him. But what we have there drawn like a black and white sketch in outline in Isaiah 52 and 3 is portrayed in vivid color. It is there in 3D dynamic vision and so let's dive in. We are moving now to the method and the meaning. Okay, I think I've got it back. Now. <laughs> We're going to play like tennis with the thing. And, and if I look panicked again, uh, that it's there. In Isaiah 53, what we have, uh, if you've got your Bibles there, it's worth having a look at it. Uh, there are In this servant song, there are five stanzas. I'm going to sound like an English teacher for a little while. Stanzas, they're like blocks of text within a poem. Okay, this is poetry. There's five of them, roughly of three verses each. Okay? Uh, and they alternate in chapter 53. 52 is a little bit of an introduction. We're going to come back to that. But we alternate between the method and the meaning. So, Isaiah 52, 53, 1 to 3, method. Verses 4 to 6, meaning. 7 to uh, 10, oh, 7-9, method. 7 to 9, method. 10 to 12, meaning. So we have this sort of back and forth. He tells us what's going to happen, then he tells us what it's going to mean. Because like with the kids' talk, actions do require explanation. Like charades, it's quite funny, I should have given Simon some really difficult ones because you guys got it way too early. But actions require interpretation. How many times have you got it wrong when someone has done something and you've jumped to a conclusion? Oh, they did that because, dot, 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 fill in the blank. And generally, it's because you've taken offense, okay? And then when you finally work it out with them, they actually say, oh, no, 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 it was was nothing like that. Um, Or there's something else that comes in that gives you an entirely different perspective on the action that has actually happened. Actions by themselves are ambiguous. Actions don't explain themselves. They need to be explained. And this action, the death and resurrection of the servant, the Lord Jesus, needs to be explained. We can come with our ideas, but the one who is the best to explain it is the one who made it happen. And here we have God's definitive description, his definitive explanation of this is what this means. Seven centuries before it actually happened. This is the definitive explanation. Who has believed our message? Isaiah 53, 1. Whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had nothing, no beauty or majesty to attract us to, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. The first stanza I've called suffering. But Isaiah introduces this concept of the arm of the Lord. And if you know the scripture, the arm of the Lord is power. The arm of the Lord is strength. And here he's saying, can you see the arm of the Lord in the, the work of the servant. What does it actually look like? Well, there's this promising start. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a, like a root out of dry ground. Wow, something good is happening here. But then things start going pear-shaped. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This arm of the Lord, this servant of the Lord, this great saviour, he wasn't like other saviors. He wasn't attractive, he wasn't charismatic, he wasn't dynamic in the way that the world looks for. He didn't tick the boxes. Do you remember uh, when uh, uh, I think it's uh, mental blank uh, Peter and Andrew, uh, they go and they talk to Nathaniel, who was going to become one of Jesus's disciples. And they say, come and meet Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember the comment that Nathanael makes at that point? He says, Nazareth? What good ever came from Nazareth? You remember when he goes to his hometown and they look at him and they think, you upstart. Who do you think you are, Jesus. You know, I changed your nappy. I wiped your nose. I picked you up when you fell over on the street and now you think you're a prophet. And in his hometown, they rejected him and tried to kill him. Despised and rejected by humanity. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. This servant doesn't appear like one of the world's winners, but rather one of the world's losers to be rejected and cast off. There was nothing in him to attract us to him. The Lord Jesus conducted a ministry over years. And this is the Lord Jesus, the son of God. And how many followers did he have at the end of that ministry? 120, I think Acts tells us. 120. Trinity Church, Brighton, post-church party is bigger than 120 people. I'm doing better than Jesus, yeah. Like, you see, nothing in his appearance to attract people to him. Worse than that, like, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. This servant of the Lord, this arm of the Lord, This demonstration of God's power, familiar with suffering and pain. Isaiah then gives us an explanation. Verse 53, verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. You know you want to. Barbara. sorry. Each of us turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This next section that gives us the meaning. Why? I've called substitution. We considered him stricken by God. Punished by God. In the ancient world, if you suffered, it's because you sinned. You've done something wrong. God is smiting you. God is striking you down. And so they're saying you're suffering, so therefore you're sinful. But do you see the irony here? The pain that he suffered, the sin that he suffered for was not his, but ours. We sinned, he suffered. Isaiah does it again and again. He was pierced, our transgressions. He was crushed, our iniquities. The punishment brought us peace. His wounds our healing. It was for us. It was for us. We're not comfortable as a society generally with the idea of sin. We tend to kind of explain it away. We tend to say, look, it's actually not my fault. There's lots of reasons why you should probably not use the word sin when you're talking about me. It's, it's a mistake, it was an accident, it was something in my we, we explain sin away. As a society, we don't really have a concept of evil so much anymore. Only the most heinous things, that's evil. But when it comes to us, it's not a category that applies. We don't deal with sin very well. And even if we do have things about us that aren't really, we know they're not quite right, the real cause of them is out there. The real cause of them is out there. How many times have you done something or said something and then when it's brought to your attention, you start to justify yourself? Do you find that? Oh, I was angry but you were late. I said that but you said something first we find a reason to shift the blame we find a reason to say the problem is not with me and even if it was it's actually not it's not that serious but it is it's kind of like searching for a melanoma on the surface it might look fairly innocuous fairly innocent But it will kill you, unless it is attended to. One small spot can invade the body. It looks like nothing, but it is deadly serious. We may think that our sin is really not that important, that it's not really such a big deal. But if you need to be convinced that your sin is a big deal, Look at what it cost to set it straight. He was pierced for my transgressions, for your transgressions. He was crushed. The punishment that brought us peace was on him by his wounds. If you need to be convinced that sin is deadly serious, look at what it cost Christ to set it straight. We can pretend until we go to Calvary, until we see the suffering of the servant. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you have a fairly casual attitude to sin. I've found it in my own heart at, on times where you kind of go, oh, dear, Jesus died for that, I'm okay. But if you really want to hate sin, If you really want to grow in godliness, you need to see sin as God sees sin. These verses, commit them to memory perhaps. He was pierced for my transgression. Pierced means not prick on the finger, but thrust through, impaled. He was crushed, not just sort of bruised, pulverized, pulverized. These are words of utter violence. For us, for us. The old Puritans used to talk about the mortification of sin, the putting to death of sin. How do you do it? Well, one step in that is learning to hate sin and seeing how God sees your sin teaches you to hate it because if it's your sin that sent Christ to the cross how can you love it how can you love it when we think of sin we need to think in terms of substitution substitution lies at the heart of sin what is the issue it's that we put our ourselves in the place of God We say that we should be the boss, we should be in charge, we substitute ourselves for God. But here we have God in salvation, substituting himself for us. Think about it, you come round and I have my Ming Ming Dynasty vase sitting there and you quite willfully go over and push it off onto the ground. Okay, it's, who knows how much my Ming vase is worth? Uh, probably not very much, that particular one. But anyway, okay, there's an issue between you and me now, isn't there? Because you've broken my vase. Okay, things need to be set right. Someone has to pay. Either you have to get me a new Ming vase or I have to say, don't worry about it. Either you pay Or I pay. There is no, no one pays. Either you pay, or I pay. It's the same with reputation. Someone drags you down, puts your name out there, and then paints it with mud. Either you're going to seek retribution, they pay, or you deal with the humiliation and the shame. You absorb the cost back onto yourself and you pay. It's the same with our sin. Either the one who sinned pays under the judgment of God or the one who is sinned against absorbs the judgment back onto himself. So both sin and salvation have substitution at their heart. John Stott, the Anglican theologian, says it beautifully. He says, The concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. The essence of sin is man or woman substituting himself, herself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God, puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. Substitution. We try and substitute ourselves for God and God in Christ has substituted himself for us. Let's go on. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet you who of his generation protested for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. I've called this one, in your notes, I think it says silence, but submission I think is a better S. Because Jesus doesn't go as an ignorant sheep. He goes as a willing all-knowing sacrifice. When he stands before Pilate, when he stands on trial and refuses to answer, it's not that he didn't have an answer to give, it's that he willingly chose to stand in our place. When he stood, no one spoke for him. Peter, one of his closest friends, denied him three times. He stood before the Jewish crowd and they screamed, we have no king but Caesar. Words that would be abhorrent to any Jew living in an occupied country, hating Roman rule, but they hated the servant even more. What shall I do with your king? Pilate asks and they scream with one voice, crucify him. Crucifying him. He submitted willingly. And in his death, he rested not with his friends, but with the wicked and the rich, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit. And the Lord then explains the meaning. He gives us this insight into salvation that this is not the will of the people or the will of Pilate. But it is the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You see, he's dead. But here he is, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions. For the many, uh, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah looked forward and saw this one who would offer himself like a lamb for sacrifice. The one who would take up upon himself our sin, and by sacrifice carry it away so that we might not face that penalty. We might not get what we deserve, but we would get what he deserved. This is the Lord's will, that this servant would have our iniquity laid upon him. It's an image that comes out of the Old Testament, comes out of the book of Leviticus, where again and again and again an animal is substituted for the sinner and then is killed in their place. The penalty falling on the animal. But that sacrifice happened again and again and again because the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, Hebrews tells us. But when the servant appeared, when Christ appeared, he offered himself according to the Lord's will, as one sacrifice once given for the many. This is the one. And after he faces giving his life as a sacrifice, he finds light. He finds division of the spoils with the strong, an image of a king in victory, dividing up the plunder, This is the servant, not dead in the grave, but alive and victorious. All the way through, Isaiah has told us that the servant trusted that the Lord would vindicate and he does. Through death to resurrection. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. Philippians says it, At his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what do we do? Third M, we marvel. Isaiah 52, my servant will act wisely, he will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who are appalled at him, his appearance so disfigured by that of human, beyond any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness. He will sprinkle. That's a Leviticus image. That's a purifier image through sacrifice. He will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. They will sit down. They will step back in light of the majesty of this servant. For what they were not told, they will see what they have not heard, they will understand. They marvel. And so we marvel. This Easter, can I encourage you not to be distracted by holidays. Yes, I know Anzac Day comes up so close to the Easter long weekend. Go out and have a great time, yes. But remember, this is not just another day. This is not just... Another Sunday. Sundays, every Sunday is a special. But this is a day where we remember the servant of the Lord, crushed, pierced, condemned, despised, buried, and raised victorious. The one who substituted himself for us. The one who stood in our place, who bore our sin, God taking back on himself the penalty that we deserved and then freely offering forgiveness in his name to all who will put their trust in him, to all who will come to him with faith. This Easter, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you've got holiday plans, but spend some time maybe go back into Isaiah 52 and 53 and spend some time prayerfully pondering, sitting with Isaiah at the foot of the cross and marvelling at the wonder of the strength and the glory and the majesty of the arm of the Lord. Not allowing Easter to be caught up with chocolates and cross buns, yummy as they are but seeing that God has blessed us so richly. Isaiah has taken us on a tour of the heart of God's country. He has opened before us the landscape of God's own heart. He has explained to us the majesty of the most horrific and tragic miscarriage of justice. And Isaiah has opened for us and for all, that this was for us. Will we not marvel? Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your spirit you would stir our hearts, that you would give us eyes that can see, ears that can hear, hearts that that are open to accept Uh, the wonder of your grace. Father, help us to see that it was for us, that it was for us that the Lord Jesus went to the cross, that it was for us that the servant was despised and rejected, that the sin that he suffered for was not his but ours. And the healing that comes through faith in his name is freely received by your grace. Father, let us, this Easter especially, but every day, let us grow in the knowledge of your love for us that is lavished upon us so richly in Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.